You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as at the time of her menstruation. She shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for thirty-three days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood for her purifying for sixty-six days. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering, and he shall offer it before Yahweh and make atonement for her. Then she shall be unclean for the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 602 of this podcast. Today is Friday, April 21st, 2023, and that was an odd chapter, a short chapter, but an odd chapter to start off this episode with. We're actually not focused in this episode primarily on childbirth, but that's where we're at in Leviticus, and I am reading a chapter at a time, a chapter a day, reading the Bible cover to cover again for the first time since high school. And we just happen to be in Leviticus chapter 12, but I think we can glean some useful information, some useful distinctions, or some clarifications, or even get some insight into what is mysteriously. It is a law from God regarding women who have given birth and how to regard them as unclean for a certain set of days or a certain period of time if they've had a baby boy versus if they've had a baby girl. It is a bit mysterious to me why there is the distinction, and all I can do is speculate. Why the difference? Why, in the case of having a baby boy, do we have 33 days of her being in a purification, cool down, and in the case of a female child, her being 
told 66 days, so twice as long. 33 days for a boy, 66 days for a girl. Unclean for two weeks in the case of a girl, in the case of a boy, eight days. And then after that, she's going through a purification ritual. So she's unclean for seven days. And then on the eighth day, a baby boy is to be circumcised. She is unclean for two weeks in the case of a girl. And then 66 days for a girl, 33 days for a boy. Why the difference? I honestly don't know. I honestly do not know, but we'll speculate along those lines. Also, in this episode, we will talk about perhaps not most importantly, but <laughs> it it is terribly pertinent. It is terribly relevant to me. It is most important to me from a practical standpoint, from a providing for my family standpoint. We're going to talk about the moral case for fossil fuels by Alex Epstein in the last part of this podcast episode. Stay tuned for that because I just read it yesterday. I found it to be worth talking about, worth worth bringing to your attention. It is something very important actually to all of us. Even if you don't work in oil and gas per se, it is very important to you being able to provide for your family, you being able to keep the lights on, you being able to keep gas in the gas tank, you being able to buy groceries and really everything. It all comes down to energy at the end of the day. And where can we get it? Where can we get energy? And can we get it for the least cost? Can we get the most benefit? That's how you really determine what is profitable in any pursuit. If the amount of energy that it takes to get the energy is greater than the energy you're going to actually get, well, then what are you doing? That's when it starts to become not just fruitless, but a really bad investment of your time and attention. And ultimately, whatever the pursuit is, it will fail. If it is always going to take you more energy expended to get the energy than the actual energy itself can produce for you, well then, your endeavor will fail. Your business will fail. Your other pursuits, even if they're not business, if they're just something on the side that's a hobby or a charitable contribution or volunteering effort, if a organization of any kind, whether for-profit or not-for-profit, expends more energy than they bring in, it's just a question of when. It's just a matter of time before they do not keep the doors open. They do not keep the lights on. So stay tuned for that. Also, we will be talking a bit about mortgage rates and where they're at, as well as the SpaceX rocket exploding over the Gulf of Mexico. That just happened yesterday. I watched the video. It's pretty spectacular to see video from the launch site, from their control center, video of the actual rocket itself launching. And it's going, it's going, it's going. We're, we're waiting for separation, but it doesn't happen. We'll get into that. And I think we can make a connection between the SpaceX rocket exploding yesterday and also Mike Mullaney's normalization of deviance, safety talks. And finally, before we get into the moral case for fossil fuels, we'll talk a little bit about Congressman Tim Burchett and some of his comments to Maria Bartiromo regarding 
what the House Intelligence Committee has found regarding the Biden family and their connections overseas, some of the evidence that maybe there was a pay-for-access, pay-to-play scheme going on for decades, not just weeks, months, years, but decades of Joe Biden's career as supposedly a public servant. That is called into question when you start looking at money that has changed hands, decisions that have been made or not made, announcements that have been made and not made. We'll get into that because actually that also, I think, ties in with the whole moral case for fossil fuels business. But first off, before any of that, before any of that, and before we expand a bit more on the purification business that is in Leviticus chapter 12, Consumer Protection Bureau staffer sent 256,000 people's data to personal account. A former employee of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, also known as the CFPB, sent personal data for hundreds of thousands of people to a personal email account, the agency confirmed this week. The since-dismissed staffer for the agency, which is responsible for protecting consumers in the financial sector, made an unauthorized transfer of records for 256,000 customers of an unnamed financial institution, as well as confidential information for 45 other institutions, an agency spokesperson confirmed with the Wall Street Journal. The spokesperson clarified that most of the records were linked to consumers at one institution, although personal data from consumers from seven other unnamed firms were implicated. CFPB officials informed the House Financial Services Committee about the major incident on March 21st, according to a letter that Oversight and Investigations Subcommittee Chairman Bill Huizenga, Republican Michigan, sent the agency. The lawmaker said the transfer, which occurred through 65 emails, contained attachments, names, and account numbers for the 256,000 individuals. The spokesperson for the CFPB said the breach was limited to two spreadsheets and lacked information that could be used to access the customer's accounts, according to the report from the Wall Street Journal, which was the first outlet to publicize the news. So what is this? Why do I bring it up? Ben Zeisloft reports over the Daily Wire. That is what I was reading for you there. I'll include a link if you want to pursue this story further. But the reason I bring it up is that we need to recognize you can't trust unaccountable bureaucracies. You can't trust the countless anonymous, faceless people who work in the bureaucracies of the U.S. government. You can't trust them to behave perfectly, to never do anything that is malicious or selfish or exploitative with the power that they have. You can't trust these people because they are people, not because they work for the government, but because they're people. You can't trust these people to have the info on you and your loved ones that they do and not misuse it. Are there individuals, lots of them probably, who are faithful with the information, with the power and authority that's been invested in them to work in our government? Sure. But that doesn't mean that they're all trustworthy, and it doesn't mean that you should have a default of trust towards these bureaucracies. 
in any human institution where there are humans, which would be all of them, you also have man's sinful nature to account for. And it's a kind of rolling of the dice. It's not a question of if, it's a question of who and when and what and why and how sins will be committed with the power that's been invested in the people who have government authority or who have power of any kind. So then the question is, well, how do we provide accountability and safeguards and checks and balances? And my answer to that would be, that is what the framers of our constitution, the ones who founded the United States of America were very concerned with. That's why they created a separation of powers and they created three branches, for instance, for the federal government. Then you've got the state and the local governments as well. And then finally, you have the people, we the people who are supposed to be attentive to the business of our own government. We are electing representatives who govern on our behalf. That's the idea. And even there, you don't have pure democracy. A lot of people want to talk about threats to our democracy. The Democrats uh, use that as code for threats to their reelection chances. But we talk a lot about democracy in this day. We don't have a pure democracy because the masses, the crowds can be manipulated all too easily to go along with demagoguery or to be bribed if somebody says, vote for me and I will reward you handsomely. I will give you a free lunch. I will give you a free house or vehicle or cell phone or healthcare plan or fill in the blank. You don't want pure democracy because it always turns out that these things are not free. There's always a cost. The question is, how high is the cost relative to the benefit and who is paying the cost? There's lots of talk in our day of what is a fair share for tax rates. The rich are or are not paying their fair share of tax rates. Corporations are paying or they are not paying their fair share of tax rates. And the big question needs to be asked, what exactly is your fair share of what somebody else earned? As Thomas Sowell has asked, that's not an original thought to me. I'll give credit where credit is due. Thomas Sowell is the one who has asked very pithily, what exactly is your fair share of what somebody else has earned? And what we're not talking about is charity. When there is a compulsion, there is a threat of violent force, violent action, the seizure of your property or the imprisonment of you yourself or the use of deadly force if you don't want to go quietly with taxation. We're not talking about the Lord loves a cheerful giver here when Democrats campaign on spending other people's money that they didn't earn to buy themselves into perpetual political power and influence. So it's an inherently corrupt thing when you have people saying, this guy over here who's got a lot of money needs to pay half of it in taxation so that I can then dole it out and so that I look very generous. It's not generosity when you're stealing from somebody else and doling it out to win favor for yourself. That's not generosity. At root, that is still fraud and deceit and theft. But what do we see in the scriptures? We see 
the Lord loves a cheerful giver. That's what we should be talking about as Christians when it comes to domestic policy, foreign policy. When it comes to sending money overseas, for instance, to Ukraine, some very manipulative arguments will be made that skirt the whole issue of whether this is voluntary. You can say, oh, but look at what is happening with the Ukrainian people. It's awful. We need to send them as much as it takes, however much it takes, however much money. And oh, by the way, just like we can have corrupt people in our government here, so also you had better believe, and there are receipts to prove that for years and years and years and years, there's been concern about corruption in the Ukrainian government. But you had better believe if we're sending a blank check to Ukraine that the American people have to make good on, you had better believe that there are folks in Ukraine as well, in the Ukraine as well, who will misappropriate those funds. And oh, by the way, what relationship does this have to the kind of charity and generosity that we see in the New Testament or the Old Testament? Even when it came to taking in material resources to build the tabernacle and the furnishings and the utensils and the priestly garments, it wasn't compulsory. It was a free will offering that was asked for. Now, some of these things are, you will do this or else you're going to be cut off from your people or else you are not part of this people. If you are not going to do this, then you're out. And there were other things where it was like, you will engage in this behavior or you have sinned. Or on the other hand, you will not engage in this behavior or else the penalty is death. We do see that in the law. But when it comes to giving, it is not charity and it is not actually giving, it is taking. It is taking, it is seizure of property, what the government does. And in this case, we have 256,000, that's a quarter of a million people who have had their private financial information transferred to someone's personal account. I'm sure not to just sit there and collect dust, but to then be redistributed to others. And for what purpose? And, and oh, by the way, do you think, here's, here's a question for you, do you think that the 256,000 people whose personal data has been shared like this, they're going to find out that good things for them have been done with that data? Like, what are the odds? Hey, what, what do you want to bet? It's like, hey, you know, we've got, <clears throat> we've got uh, a list of names that we want to reward and we want to thank publicly, but don't tell them. It's a surprise. No, I'm sure not. I'm sure I'm sure that that is not the case. This is not the kind of thing that you do when you want the public to trust your agency or your government. You don't go transferring other people's private data. And for that matter too, I mean, what is the limit when it comes to our private information being in the hands of the US government? Do we even believe in the right to privacy anymore or do we believe that the government has de facto unquestioned right to know every last little detail about us? And if we want to object to a particular detail, we actually have the burden of proof. We have to demonstrate our justification for keeping certain info private. If that is our, if that is our assumption, we have it exactly backwards to what the founding fathers would have asserted and what is safe and what is wise and what is reasonable. We are supposed to be presumed innocent until proven guilty 
beyond a reasonable doubt. That should be the standard, beyond a reasonable doubt. The concurrence of, the preponderance of the evidence, testimony or physical evidence should be presented and it should not be the default assumption that the government has the right to know every last little detail about you and I because the government is comprised of people who can't always be trusted. Speaking of untrustworthy people and your private data, anyone who used Facebook in the last 16 years can now get settlement money. Here's how. CBSnews.com reports Money Watch, a little write-up by Amy Pichy. I'm going to go ahead and play a brief clip, and then I have some comments on what is being said in the discussion back and forth here about this. Here's cut one. Take a listen. Facebook's parent company, Meta, began another round of layoffs this week in a continuing effort to downsize and restructure. 10,000 employees are expected to lose their jobs in this second round of layoffs, affecting mostly technical program managers, machine learning engineers, and UX researchers. And if you've used Facebook over the past 16 years, you could be eligible for a payout from the platform. It's part of a $725 million settlement from lawsuits against Facebook by users who accuse the platform of improperly sharing their data with third parties. Okay, so I'm not going to play the full clip. There's just a brief taste of what they're talking about here. So you know that I didn't just get some weird spammy email and uh, take it seriously when it's not real. It's not for reals. <laughs> oh, and <clears throat> some Nigerian prince, I'm sure, wants to send me a whole bunch of money because I'm his long lost cousin. I'll bet. No, this is legit. This is a real thing. And if you watch the rest of the video, which I'll include a link to in the description for this podcast episode, what they are most concerned about is the sharing of data, users' private data, with a firm called Cambridge Analytica, which then in turn helped Trump's 2016 campaign for the presidency. That's what really got all of these Democrats and the mainstream media on board with being concerned about Facebook's handling of users' private data. Now, bear in mind, all that private data has been shared with lots of people who have lots of different political agendas, lots of social agendas, and it wasn't until Trump wanted to use that data to win in 2016 that the Democrats suddenly found a conscience with regards to the handling of users' private info. And then, then the gloves were off. Oh, this is how could this happen? This is such an abuse of people's privacy, and this is manipulative. And of course, yes, it is. But <laughs> to quote, actually has uh, an appropriate application here. You too. Uh, to quote is Latin for you too, by the way. And it can be a logical fallacy or a kind of red herring where you instead of answering the charge against you, which wouldn't apply in my case because I haven't been mishandling your private information. I don't work for Facebook or Meta or any of the rest. But if a charge is made against, let's say, the Trump campaign, where they say, how could you, how dare you? It's so unethical for you to have used this metadata. That's why Meta is called Meta, by the way. They're using this metadata to target certain demographics in the U.S., with advertisement that would appeal to them so that they will vote Donald Trump in 2016. How dare you? That's so unethical. Yeah, Obama did it too. 
Lots of Democrats did this. In fact, the whole platform curated news around what would be damaging to Democrats. Let's suppress that. And what would be flattering towards Republicans. Let's suppress that. And what would be in the interest of advancing the political and social agenda of the left. Let's promote that. Let's make that trend. And what would promote the uh, damage, the, the most damage to Republicans and their social agenda, conservatives and their social agenda. Let's promote that. Let's make that trend. So I'll tell you, I was an early adopter. I remember in college at Cedarville University when Lauren and I attended there, I first signed up for my Facebook account back in 2006 and I deleted my Facebook account, that Facebook account after 14 years in 2020, I jumped back on in 2021. After a year of being off of the platform, I created a new account. I didn't just deactivate my account. I deleted it, but I downloaded all of my information before I did. And I still have it on my computer and it is quite something to go back through and look at it presented in the way that it would look if some firm were going to be getting a hold of it. There's quite a lot of information. There's quite a lot that a a clever person, an analytical person, a deductive person could learn about me from looking at my metadata and looking at metadata of people like me. There's a lot that somebody could learn if they wanted to manipulate me or bully me or thwart my effort to participate in the public discourse. And that really is, I would say, the larger threat to democracy insofar as we have democratic institutions in this country. And we do, right? We're a constitutional republic, but we have democratic features. Insofar as those democratic features are contingent on you being able to freely associate with people who are like-minded and you find common cause with, for mutual aid and benefit and cooperation to pursue things that are perceived to be profitable to you and them alike, insofar as our democratic institutions are contingent on being able to engage in free speech online now, where that's the public square, yes, I absolutely have signed up to receive some of this money because my access to the platform was not advertised to me on the front end as, hey, our business model is to sell your information to people who want to manipulate you or neutralize you online and in real life. That's not what was advertised to me. That was advertised to <laughs> investors and potential customers and clients of Meta way back in the day. And certainly people, again, going back to unelected bureaucrats in three-letter alphabet soup uh, U.S. government agencies, it was certainly known to those people that this data could be mined for useful information to neutralize people or to promote other people who would advance certain agendas, who could be relied on to support or oppose certain measures. So yeah, I absolutely did sign up to receive some of this money because if my info was sold, if my info was sold along with everybody else's and also too, if my attempts to engage in the public discourse were thwarted in a way that made unprofitable the amount of money and time and energy that I poured into trying to build up a blog and write a book and podcast, well then yes, I, I do think that 
Meta has a responsibility to make me whole and to restore me and to pay back, essentially, uh, what they deprived me of in the way of opportunity. And it's not just me, of course, it's millions and millions and millions of Americans just like me, not just Americans, but my interest is primarily in the American side of this. And I think that's where their attentions were primarily uh, focused. But I'll put a link as well to where you can sign up and submit a claim as part of this class action lawsuit. Uh, I do think this is one of those cases where it is good to have a class action lawsuit. Some are frivolous, some are just ridiculous and absurd. Yes, I know that trial lawyers are in it to make money and they make a lot and they make a lot of money and they get a very handsome reward for having successfully pursued this litigation. But all the same, this is part of how we hold corporations and government accountable is when there is wrongdoing, we pursue accountability. If we stop doing that, we are going to get more bad behavior. You you just will. You will get man's sinful nature running amok and we don't want that any more than is absolutely, uh, I don't want to say necessary, but unavoidable, shall we say. Moving on. Candace Hathaway over at theblaze.com published a piece just yesterday. Blood on your hands, leftist trans lawmaker spews hateful anti-Christian remarks at Republicans for supporting ban on mutilating surgeries for minors. So yes, this is a lawmaker, not just some activist, not just some protester. This is somebody who was elected to the legislature. And I'll go ahead and present without comment first on the front end, cut two here of the remarks on the House floor as presented by MPAN. Montana Freedom Caucus has tweeted this out. Here is cut one. Take a listen. And the only thing I will say is if I if you vote yes on this bill and yes on these amendments, I hope the next time there's an invocation, when you bow your heads in prayer, you see the blood on your hands. All right. That was brief. I recognize you might need some more context and a reminder what this is in relation to. The comments made by Representative Zui Zephyr of Missoula, Montana, were in relation to SB 99 amendments. Uh, more to the point, <laughs> Senate Bill 99, legislation supported by conservative lawmakers, would ban performing sex change operations on children in the state of Montana. So then the comment from Representative Zephyr, I would say congressman, regardless of whether this congressman is dressed up like a woman or telling you his preferred pronouns are feminine pronouns, this is a man. This is biologically a man. And so let's be clear on that. A man is a man. A woman is a woman. And I quote, the only thing I will say is if you vote yes on this bill and yes on these amendments, I hope the next time there's an invocation when you bow your heads in prayer, you see blood on your hands. I'll note as well, the blaze write-up on this refers to Zephyr by feminine pronouns. And I think that that is highly unfortunate. I think that is a mistake. I disagree with that. If a man says, I want you to refer to me with feminine pronouns, we are defeating our own argument. We are sending very mixed signals to say, okay, well, I'll call you a she, I'll call you her, 
she, her, if that's what you would prefer. And oh, by the way, I would agree with Michael Knowles when he says we shouldn't just be banning this for children. If it's wrong objectively, it's not just wrong for children. It's wrong for everybody. It's wrong for everybody to do this. But there is a confusion with regards to the question of liberty and what is liberty and how much should we operate from the categories of good and evil according to what God's word says, according to what God says is good and evil when it comes to legislation and when it comes to our own laws in this country, the United States of America, in the individual states like the state of Montana, there's confusion as to whether we are permitted, whether it is okay, whether we are comfortable doing so, whether it's safe to do so without being canceled to say, we're going to refer back to God's categories of good and evil. I absolutely believe that we have to. Let me be very clear on that. When Romans 13, which is held up by a lot of Christians on all ends of the political spectrum, and even people who consider themselves apolitical, point to Romans 13 rightly in many cases to say, it says we should submit to the governing authorities. But here's the kicker. Here's the fine print there. God is ultimately the governing authority you are supposed to be submitting to when you submit to the governing authorities. And so how can it be that we're submitting to God and submitting to governing authorities when the governing authorities might say, well, we're going to blur the line between what is good and what is evil, and we're going to call some things evil that are good and some things good that are actually objectively evil according to God. How can we say then that we are submitting to God and his authority when we are submitting to governing authorities who are human and we blur those lines and we don't make those distinctions properly. We exchange bitter for sweet or we go along with and we flatter the going along with that. I say we can't. That's actually when we will see blood on our hands, when we affirm these things. And then that leads people down the path of destruction. And I don't just mean spiritually. I mean physically as well. Gender reassignment surgeries are self-mutilation. This is a very mentally ill and very sinful, very wicked influence in our society right now. And it's not content just to make choices for one's own person. This is being pushed on everybody. And it's a, it's a tyrannical, satanic agenda that is being hoisted on all of us. And we have to be, we have to be honest about that. If we're not honest about that, that's when we have blood on our hands. But if you want to affirm this person's preferred pronouns and also oppose gender reassignment surgery for children, I would say you are defeating the premise of your own proposed legislation in going along with the preferred pronouns. And that, of course, is something that is objected to here as well. It is said that misgendering this lawmaker in Montana from Missoula, it is said that it is highly disrespectful and hypocritical for them to call for civility and respect while misgendering the lawmaker. No, it's not misgendering to say you are a he, him, you are a man. It's not misgendering. You're the one who is telling everyone to misgender you. We are correctly gendering you when we say you are a man dressed up like a woman. You are pretending. Speaking of transgenderism, another piece at the Daily Wire from Hank Berrien published just today under news 
Blueprint on Total Destruction, Astronomically Dangerous, FBI Delaying Release of Nashville Shooters Manifesto. Officials say, I'll include a link. We won't spend a lot of time on this, but if you'll recall, March 27, there was a shooting at a Christian school in Nashville, Tennessee. There was a manifesto. That manifesto has not been made public. And the claim here from law enforcement is they're concerned about an ongoing threat. So even though that shooter was neutralized in the case of the March 27th incident, there is supposedly still a grave danger of harm to the public that they believe would be exacerbated by release of the manifesto. I can speculate. I don't know the answer. I don't know why they would say or what circumstance would cause them to be able to justify that concern or that claim. But if I were to speculate, I would say they're concerned about copycat incidents if the manifesto is seen by other transgendered people. That would be my guess. I don't know if that's correct. And we'll see. We'll see if more explanation comes out in the weeks and months and years ahead. But insofar as you could reasonably expect the comments made by the congressman from Missoula, Montana to be fanned into violent flames by other transgendered persons committing violent acts against Christians and against conservatives in the U.S. I think we know all that we need to know that this is not some harmless, innocent, good faith plea for human rights on the part of transgendered people. They are unwell and corrupt and depraved. And they are furthering proof of that beyond just the fact that they are confusing what gender they are and lying and telling other people to affirm their lies. They are going a step farther in threatening violence towards those who misgender them or those who want to tell them no. Another example of this is found at Not The Bee, published yesterday. Jesse James, a pseudonym I trust. Not for no reason, by the way, speaking of privacy, not for no reason do several of the people who post over at Not The Bee use a alternative name, which is not the same thing as saying, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, by the way. It's not the same thing. But nevertheless, here's the quote. I dare you to try and stop me from going into a women's bathroom. Here is cut three. I'll go ahead and play it for you. This is a trans person waxing eloquent and, well, shall we say, threatening violence. Threatening violence against people who would say to him, no. Take a listen. I dare you to try and stop me from going into a women's bathroom. I dare you to try and stop a transgender woman in my presence from using the bathroom. It will be the last mistake you ever make. This is a call to action. You need to arm up. And so there you have it. That's pretty clear. Hard to misunderstand when you start employing rhetoric like there's a genocide against trans people. And then that turns into, I'm going to threaten violent action if you tell me no, if you tell me I'm not a woman, actually, even though I'm claiming to be a woman, or if you tell me I'm not allowed in the women's restroom because I'm not actually a woman, 
When, when you threaten that that's the last thing you'll ever do, it's the last mistake you'll ever make, that is a deadly threat of violent action. And then it's coupled with, this is a call to action you need to arm up. I think this is the reason why the law enforcement uh, officials and agents who are not releasing the manifesto from the Nashville shooter, I think this is the reason why they are not doing so because they expect that more copycat incidents will take place across the U.S. And they don't want that. But then how do you actually uh, prevent that if you're going to go on affirming and rewarding and encouraging trans people in their delusions? It's not going to get to be a lower cost the longer we go on. It's going to get to be a higher and higher cost. And at a certain point, we have to just recognize that and accept that this is the cost. This is what it is. You're just going to have to. You're going to have to, or the cost just goes up and up and up. And by the way, too, let me go back and touch on Leviticus chapter 12 again. Only women can give birth. Only women. And chapter 12 of the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament is speaking exclusively about women when we read what should be done after childbirth. What we don't see here is if a woman conceives and bears a child, wait until that child is old enough to tell you what their preferred gender is before you decide to circumcise or before the woman goes through her purification ritual. We don't see that at all. The presumption is immediately on the birth of the child, you do a visual check and you know this is a male child or this is a female child. Those are the two options. There are no additional options that are presented for us in this chapter. None whatsoever. None. You know this is a male child or this is a female child. And oh, by the way, there are celebrities who have said publicly when it came out that they were pregnant. I think Emily uh, Ratajkowski, I think I'm saying her name right, model, uh, poses in a state of various degrees of undress, as a matter of course, has for years and years. She's a beautiful woman, but she looks profoundly unhappy and she's profoundly, profoundly mistaken. Very, very badly mistaken. It's a tragedy, actually. She's a woman who lacks sense, who's beautiful, but also not so beautiful when you realize what she thinks and how out of step that is with reality. Here's where truth and beauty really have to coincide and goodness completes the picture of a woman who is truly beautiful. I would say Emily Ratajkowski has an appearance of beauty, but then her character says otherwise. Her handling of the truth says otherwise. I believe it was her who a few years ago said, we're pregnant and when the baby is born, we're going to wait to say whether this is a boy or a girl until this child is old enough to say for themselves, which is the case, which they feel like. When they're 18 years old, <clears throat> that's when they'll know. That's when this child will decide whether they are male or female, boy or girl, man or woman. That's when they'll decide. Now, curiously, even though they supposedly have this gender-neutral household, the name they gave to this boy is Sylvester Apollo 
both boy names, both masculine names, by the way. And even when I just Google it, I just type in Emily Ratajkowski, baby gender, right up top, Google says, boy, beautiful boy. She captioned the intimate shot of her and Sylvester Apollo Bear on Instagram. So it's a, it's a boy. It's as simple as that. This is a boy. So what were you just saying? Nonsense. That's what you were saying. Moving on. Mortgage rates have nearly doubled over the past year, and now Biden is forcing good credit home buyers to pay more on their mortgage in order to subsidize those that are at higher risk. Another piece from Not the Bee, Cardinal Pritchard, not his real name. I say this almost every day, but this is getting a little ridiculous, folks. Now the Biden administration wants low-risk home buyers to pay a little extra in order to accommodate those whose loans carry more risk. Nope, not joking. Fox News reports Biden rule will redistribute high-risk loan costs to homeowners with good credit. And in that case, I would say, what exactly is the point of having a good credit score? What exactly is the point of working really hard to pay bills on time, pay off your debts, not just declare bankruptcy when things get tight? I've thought about it several times over the years, especially with the oil and gas industry going up and down the way that it does, thanks to Democrats in particular and their regulative agenda, but we have never declared bankruptcy. And I hope that that continues to be the case, that we will never declare bankruptcy. I said it when we were in the run-up to the 2020 election. I said it that I anticipate if Joe Biden is elected president, I will probably be driven into bankruptcy. That, that was my prediction. That was my expectation. I hope that ends up not being the case, but he has pushed this economy into such a bad state, despite my best efforts over years and years and years, hard work, trying to be diligent, trying to build my career and my professional skill set, despite my best efforts, there's a lot that he and his administration are doing, have done, plan to keep on doing that negates me enjoying the fruits of my labor, really truly. The erosion of the spending power of my dollars makes it very difficult to gain ground on building up savings, accumulating enough wealth to purchase a home. We're still renting. Pay down debts. And this is just one more example of how they're doing it. They say they're promoting social justice. They say they're pursuing equity, diversity, equity, and inclusivity what they're not including is reward for good behavior, reward for those who have been diligent, who have been making a good faith effort to pay their bet, pay their debts, pay their bills on time, repay what is owed to others. And really too, ideally, we don't take on debt at all, right? Ideally, we save and spend and save and spend and you invest where there will be a return. You invest your money where you will get more back in profit than what you put in in investment. That's business 101. That's what my degree, I have an associate's in applied science, business administration. I was very, very close to having my bachelor's in business management prior to my wife's major knee surgery several years ago. But that is business 101. I'm not an MBA, but I've read lots of books on economics, lots of books on business management, leadership, administration, accounting is 
a very simple thing. You need to have more money coming in than is going out. Otherwise, you will have to close the doors. You'll have to turn off the lights, close the doors, pack it up, and find something else to do sooner or later. And when it comes to something as simple as being able to afford a home in which to raise your family, a home that you own, where you are building equity instead of paying somebody else so that they can build equity. When it comes to that, this administration, this party, the Democratic Party, has really hurt the average American. And they they do it all claiming they're after the rich guy. They're trying to make the rich guy pay his fair share. No, no. You have hurt low-income and middle-income, middle-class Americans, poor Americans. You have hurt us. And I am in that category. I'm not upper class. I am not wealthy. I'm not rich by any stretch. But my goal is not to be rich. My goal is to be independent and to abide by what Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, aspiring to live a quiet life, working with my hands, minding my own affairs, being dependent on no one, walking properly before outsiders. That is very, very difficult, if not impossible to do, when the Democrats keep doing what they do to the economy and they keep tinkering with and tweaking in the interest of so-called diversity, equity, inclusivity, or the woke agenda, if you want to put it more succinctly. Zero Hedge is quoted in the Not the Bee write-up. A new rule from the Biden administration will force homebuyers with good credit scores to pay higher mortgage rates in order to subsidize loans to those with riskier borrowing profiles, the Washington Times reports. The fee, which will apply to those buying or refinancing houses after May 1st, will affect homebuyers with credit scores of 680 or higher, amounting to roughly $40 per month on a home loan of $400,000 or nearly $500 per year. Homebuyers who make down payments of 15% to 20% will be hit with the largest fees. Biden appointed FHA Director Sandra Thompson, meanwhile, said that the fee changes will, quote, increase pricing support for purchase borrowers limited by income or by wealth, end quote. And the agency considers the fee charges, quote, minimal, end quote. What you're doing in that case is not charity. Again, this is not charity. This is not a case of the Lord loves a cheerful giver. What you're doing is you are taking from those who have tried to do what is good and what is right, and they've tried to be diligent. You're giving it to those who, for whatever reasons, right? And there can be reasons. There can be medical situations like my family has had, like my wife had, some major medical problems, health problems that we had to attend to, and that was costly. It ate into my ability to work and work overtime. It ate into our savings and destroyed, actually, really, in some sense, our ability to save because, you know, both in the money going out to pay medical bills, plus also the, you know, peripheral expenses that come with having to travel back and forth. There's the Big reason why we moved to Colorado, by the way, not the only, but it was a big reason why we moved here because we couldn't afford these constant trips back and forth between Sydney and Billings where the best medical care we could reach would be available. Uh, We couldn't afford the fuel costs and the food costs and having to stay with people or send our kids to stay with people and I would have to take off work. It was just, it wasn't feasible. It wasn't sustainable. But 
There are also lots of people who get themselves in a huge amount of trouble because they just make bad choices. They just make bad choices with money. They don't work hard and they're not careful and they're not diligent and they don't care. And why should they be helped at the expense of responsible, hardworking people who have tried to do the right thing consistently over time when it's not a choice, right? It's not a choice. It's one thing if you say, hey, you know, on a case by case, I want to help you. But that's not what this is. That's not what this is at all by a long shot. Moving on. We're almost to the part where we talk about the moral case for fossil fuels. So bear with me. We've got a couple of additional things that I think set the stage for that conversation. First up being Jack Phillips writing for the Epoch Times. Just yesterday, 400-foot SpaceX rocket explodes over Gulf of Mexico. If you haven't watched the video, you should. It's not long, but I watched the video of the control center staff looking at their computer screens. Elon Musk there in the corner because SpaceX is his baby. Lots and lots of people watching on big screens, very excited about the launch of this rocket. And what happened that it exploded was that there was supposed to be separation at a certain point in the flight. There was supposed to be separation, in which case the multiple stages of the rocket would work and the separation didn't occur for some reason. It's not clear to me why, but when the separation didn't occur and then the next stage wanted to kick off, what ended up happening was an explosion. And watching the announcers, listening to the announcers immediately after the explosion, they didn't seem super shocked or super discouraged by that. Hey, that happens. That's part of it. That's one of the things that comes with the territory is you have to expect that sometimes you're going to have failures and you have to learn from them. Go back to the drawing board, design the next one based on what you learned this time around, uh, engineer out those failure points, build a better rocket ship, build a better mousetrap the next time. Uh, But that is to say too, that I'm reminded in thinking about the SpaceX rocket exploding, I'm reminded of a certain series of safety videos that I watched several times over the years working in oil and gas, which is also uh, a industry where you have to pay attention to the potential for explosions. You're dealing with flammable and explosive uh, resources that are being extracted from deep underground, brought to the surface, where if they come in contact with an ignition source and oxygen, they will explode And you will have harm to personnel and equipment and the environment, which you don't want. That's what I do for a living is I work in automation and automating these processes to make them safe. Looking at sensors, monitoring for certain set points uh, to be reached that are going to shut things down before you have an incident or help to regulate pressures and temperatures and flow rates and such like that so that you achieve maximal production at minimal risk. Mike Mullaney did some videos talking about the Challenger shuttle that exploded years and years ago. Mike Mullaney with NASA, a 
rocket engineer, very smart guy, a astronaut as well, speaks in some very popular videos for safety personnel, health and safety and environment personnel in the oil and gas industry. He speaks about this concept called the normalization of deviance. And I won't play this full clip. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. You can watch the full video if you would like to, or a series of videos. It'll give you a rabbit trail to follow. But listen to him talking about normalization of deviance here and its relationship to the space shuttle Challenger explosion that killed several astronauts. Here is cut for Take a listen. What you just saw, the destruction of the Space Shuttle Challenger in 1986, was no accident. It was a result of a normalization of deviance. I'm astronaut Mike Mullane. I'm a West Point graduate, but took my commission in the United States Air Force. I'm a combat veteran of Vietnam, and I flew three times on the Space Shuttle. That's an odd term, normal deviance. What does it mean? Normalization of deviance is that natural human tendency, particularly in pressure circumstances, to want to take a safety shortcut. The pressure you may be under is family pressure. There's something going on, going on at the home that's putting you under pressure. Could be budget pressure. Schedule pressure is certainly a huge hammer. But it is a very human thing to find yourself in a pressure circumstance. You have a job to do, and that job may involve hazards. You have safety standards that are expected of you in executing this job. But now you rationalize that because of this pressure you're under, you're not going to be able to do that job and meet those safety standards. It may be a situation something like this. Uh, you're, you have a job to do in the plant or the refinery. It involves hazards, and you know you're supposed to wear protective equipment to do it. But you rationalize, that's going to take time, and I don't have time to dress in that protective equipment. I have to get home to take the kids to the ball game. I have to get onto my lunch break. I got to get onto the next job, whatever. And you say to yourself, well, I've also done this job a thousand times in the past and nothing bad has ever happened. I can certainly do it this one time without wearing protective equipment and get away with it. And that's exactly what you do. You take that safety shortcut. And what happens? What are the consequences of you doing that? There are none. There are no bad consequences immediately. What ha you get the job done. You're not injured. The boss doesn't call and scream at you. You get on to your lunch break, you get on to the next job, you get home to take the kids to the ball game, whatever. There's a happy outcome all around. What's that going to do? It's going to start forming this false feedback in your brain. The absence of something bad happening when I took this safety shortcut means it was safe to do so. So what's going to happen the next time you find yourself in these same pressure circumstances? And there's always a next time. Because there were no negative consequences the first time, you took that safety short shortcut, you're going to be mightily tempted to do it again. And you do it enough times and slowly what happens? The shortcut becomes the norm. You get away with it so many times that loop is reinforced. The absence of something bad happening means it was safe to take the shortcut. That is reinforced over and over and over until the shortcut becomes the norm. Here's where you're supposed to be in meeting standards and doing this hazardous job and meeting safety standards and doing this hazardous job, here's where you are. This deviance is now invisible to you. It has been normalized into your behavior, into your actions. And what happens with normalization of deviance is it leads to predictable surprises. 
And in hazardous environments, as you face in those plants and in those refineries and as astronauts face in space, a predictable surprise can be injurious and it can be deadly. And if you ever want an object lesson in a predictable surprise, look at Challenger. Challenger was no accident. Challenger was a predictable surprise. And cut. I would encourage you, do check out the longer videos. You'll hear more of the story of why he says that about Challenger. It really had everything to do with O-rings, which were not up for the task. O-rings that were really close to failure again and again on these space shuttle flights, these launches, they would get equipment back. It would fall back to Earth. They would look at it and... There were a lot of people who were looking at these O-rings, looking at every piece to see, okay, how did the equipment hold up? Do we have the right equipment out there? How's it doing? And increasingly, there was concern that these O-rings just are not sufficient. They're not sufficient for the task, and we need to go back to the drawing board and redesign them. And the pressure from above was, nope, we don't have time for that. Nothing bad has happened. Just keep going. Just keep sending, keep sending, keep sending. We want to stay on schedule and we want to keep our costs low and just keep it to yourself. And then all of a sudden you do have a predictable surprise and you have several astronauts killed with the space shuttle exploding for all to see. And what's the cost of that? And what is that to you, to your schedule? Those are important questions we need to be considering, not just with regards to space shuttles, not just with regards to astronauts and rockets, not just with regards to oil and gas, but with regards to the transgender moment that we're in as well, where this is being pushed, this is being hyped. And until you do have a very predictable surprise happen that costs human lives, you will have people just like Mr. Mullane is describing. You will have people saying, Nothing bad happened. Therefore, this is just fine. This is fine. This is acceptable. We normalize the deviance. We normalize the deviation from the standard. And it is predictable what the outcome will be. I am here to predict it, that we will get more death. We will get more violence in these areas where we have deviated from what God says is good and what God says is true. We will get more violence. We will get more death, more suffering, and it will be on the macro. And we don't want that. But if we don't want that really truly, then we have to make changes. We have to be willing to go back to the drawing board on things as simple as O-rings and procedures and how we conduct business and how we have conversations. You know, the quickest way to normalize deviation is to tell somebody to stow it when they bring a valid concern and to say, you're the problem here. The problem is not the problem that you're bringing up. The problem is that you're bringing up the problem that we don't think is a problem because nothing catastrophic has happened just yet. Speaking of, now we move on to more of the meat and potatoes of what I want to tell you about with the moral case for fossil fuels. Ben Zeisloff, just yesterday, published at the Daily Wire, AOC reintroduces the Green New Deal. I think it's somewhat superfluous because we've got most of the Green New Deal in the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which, uh, according to the Democrats themselves, wasn't really about reducing inflation. Not really. 
they were smuggling in a whole lot of the Green New Deal that AOC put forward several years ago. The green here is a color to keep it simple and to cause a kind of symbolic uh, association and to cause you to think that what they're pursuing, what they're promoting economically and socially is going to be profitable for one. You think green, you think money. And it's also going to be good for the environment. You think green, you think green grass and green trees and other foliage. You think a positive influence on the environment. That's what you're supposed to be thinking, but that's not what this is. It's not based on sound economic principles. It's not based on true equity and justice, according to God. It's not based on what is good and what is right, according to God's word, or according to objective reality, as thousands of years of recorded human history testifies to in our own eyes, if we would open them, if we would see, if we would look and see and listen and really hear and understand, we would know this is not according to reality. This is trying to assert a kind of dominance over reality. It's a willfulness. I see Green New Deal and I actually think the Reds in Russia. I think Bolshevik Revolution. I don't think, you know, money, we're all going to be wealthier because so much as has been tried thus far has not made us wealthier. It's made us a great deal poorer, most of us. Somebody it hasn't made poorer, however, is Joe Biden and actually his family and quite a lot of uh, Democrat establishment politicians have not been made poorer by these decisions. In fact, their portfolios are handsomely rewarded by their market manipulation through executive actions or judicial appointees who will strike down or uphold certain legislative pieces. Tim Burchett from Tennessee, Republican congressman from Tennessee, sat down to talk with Maria Bartiromo over at Fox Business about just this problem, this problem of corruption. And corruption, really, in order to understand corruption, you have to understand that there is such a thing as good, objectively. There is no corruption if you reject that good is a category, a real objective category. But here is a short clip. I'll play cut five here for you of Tim Burchett talking about influence peddling by the Biden family. On behalf of Joe Biden, they go around the world and solicit donations and have made themselves very wealthy. What is that? Uh, what exactly is their business? It is to pay 10% to the big guy. And then he gives information. He sits down for very important meetings. He makes decisions or uses his influence within the US government to cause certain things to happen or to not happen that would be beneficial or profitable to foreign agents or foreign parties or foreign countries. But without my putting words in Tim Burchett's mouth, let me just play him speaking to this congressman from Tennessee from just this morning. I got the notification on LinkedIn because I follow Maria Bartiromo on LinkedIn. Here is Tim Burchett and Maria Bartiromo discussing it just this morning. Take a listen. Well, we've learned that the corruption goes straight to the top, Maria. It's obvious that what's going on here, the influence peddling by this White House and um, 
and everyone associated with them. This 51 people, I mean, it's just a big lie is all it was. And uh, how they have that much power over these people is beyond me. You have to wonder at what level of pressure that they, they put on those folks and what they held over their heads, because there is nothing from what I've seen from uh, the information that we've got. There's nothing that they will will, will stoop to 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 um, to keep President Biden in office, basically. I mean, they really just derailed the Trump administration and his um, attempt to be reelected. That is incredible. I mean, do they not care that there's influence peddling evidence in plain sight, that the Biden family appears to have been taking money from uh, foreign adversaries and pocketing that money uh, by uh, selling access to the United States leadership? Ma'am, we know of at least eight Biden family members who have profited uh, from dealings overseas. I think if you, you delve, delve into it deep enough, I mean, there's... Uh, prostitution rings involved in this. Human trafficking has been rumored to be a part of some of this. Uh, these these so-called companies that have uh, that have allowed the Biden family to profit. I mean, it is it is gross and it is disgusting about what has been allowed to go on. Those, if I was those 51 people, um, I'd be lawyering up right now because they're going to be asked in public at some point what they knew, and if they knew that all this other stuff was going on, because it is it is very damning, Maria. This is just the very tip of the iceberg. This uh, very brave IRS agent coming forward, I think, will um, will just start it. And I, you know, they're, they're talking about impeaching Biden. How could how could we not impeach Biden if this does in fact reach him? I, I wonder what their defense will be. Well, this is just extraordinary. And you know, Congressman, I know that. You know, people like John Brennan and James Clapper, you know, appeared dirty way before this because they were peddling the Russia collusion lie and really driving it across federal agencies, certainly at the CIA and the FBI and, and other intelligence areas of our government. So I'm not, I'm not surprised that we're seeing that from the likes of John Brennan. But some of these other names on this list, Leon Panetta, other intelligence officials that really were not part of any of these lies of the last couple of years, how is it that they got them to agree to sign their name to this when you have a sitting president, a then sitting vice president, accepting millions of dollars, pocketing it in his personal accounts from communist China? Uh, obviously, they've lied. And if they've had doc, uh, doctored documents, I'm sure they would show people like Leon Panetta that, because I can see, I don't agree with Mr. Panetta's uh, politics, but I think he's a, he's a very decent man. And I think that he, um, right. he he loves this country. So I suspect they were, they were completely misled. I mean, if a, if a good old boy from Tennessee, Maria, can, can read some of these documents and see just the... Um, the ability to wash millions, and I'm not talking about thousands, I'm talking about millions and millions of dollars that have flowed into the coffers of the Biden family. Like I said, we know of at least eight. If, if I can look at some of these documents and see this, I cannot imagine how the Justice Department allowed this to go on, if not for corruption at the highest level. And they are in some serious trouble right now. I think they know it. And cut. A passage to consider here, I think as we are listening to that kind of a conversation, 
provided we are, and I hope that more of us are paying attention because how do you do anything about it if you're not even willing to take a look at it? If you're willing to turn a blind eye to it, we will get more of the same and worse. But consider James 3, verse 13 to the end of the chapter. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, I read that, and you might say, well, but Garrett, how does that bear any relation to this conversation with Maria Bartiromo? It doesn't look to me like she's being gentle, or Congressman Burchett from Tennessee is being peaceful. I mean, you could have jealousy and selfish ambition on the Republican side of things. And how can we know? There's just dirtiness and corruption all around. And I just don't have time for that. I'm busy doing that thing you were talking about with Thessalonians and minding my own affairs. This is none of my business. That's none of my business, like Kermit the Frog with the sweet tea meme. But let me actually go a different direction with this passage in James 3. Let me suggest to you that we all individually would be a lot better off if wisdom from above, which is what this paragraph is described with in the ESV over at biblehub.com, wisdom from above were infused into our political process, our political engagement, and the way we make decisions together. That's what you should really hear. When you hear politics, what you should actually understand that to be is how we make decisions together how we govern ourselves, how we relate to foreign countries and other people who are not our people, how do we relate to one another as fellow citizens of this country, the United States of America specifically. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. I personally would love to see more humility and more wisdom among our governing officials. I would like to see that. But what I see a lot of is the other thing. I I see the other thing where James says, but, <laughs> but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. We see a lot of bitter jealousy. We see a lot of selfish ambition. We see a lot of boasting. and We see a lot of being false to the truth. Now, the next verse, verse 15 says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. And then the next verse after that tells us that where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And so what we shouldn't suppose is that just because somebody is in government or just because somebody is on TV and they can dress nicely and they have nice hair and makeup and a beautiful set behind them, all to lend credibility if you're reading Neil Postman and Steve Powers, 
in how to watch TV news. All of this is supposed to create a credibility around this person and whatever they say, which very often is just reading from a script. They're actors who are paid to read off of a script. They're not necessarily journalists just because they look good on TV. Uh, all of this is supposed to give credibility to what might be actually uh, boasting on the one hand and being false to the truth on the other hand. Not suggesting Maria Bartiromo is characterized by that, but my point is whether it's people in government or it's people in the media or people in corporations, we should not be surprised to find that when there is jealousy and selfish ambition, we will also find disorder on the one hand. So things will not be in order. They will be disordered, chaotic. Even though God is a God of order, not a God of chaos, we will find chaos. We shouldn't be surprised to find that. We should expect to find it. Uh, Also, we should expect to find every vile practice when wisdom from above, godly wisdom is rejected soundly, systematically, consistently across the board. We should expect to find every vile practice. So then what do we do, right? In the last couple of verses, the last two verses of this chapter, James chapter three, we are told that wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, that is to say reasonable, uh, merciful, so full of mercy, also means merciful, uh, good fruits, impartial and sincere. Impartial. I want you to focus on that word impartial with me for a moment. There's a lot that the Bible has to say about bribes. Exodus 23, 8, for instance, you must not take a bribe for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and corrupts the words of the righteous. Corrupts the words of the righteous. That is to say, even the righteous, if they are offered a bribe, can have their words corrupted. You don't say, ah, this person is righteous. Don't even suggest that they might be playing word games with the truth. If there's a bribe involved, then actually that's exactly what will happen. That's, that is exactly what will happen. When you find that there are bribes or there's evidence of bribes in the mix, you should also expect that what you've been told is not the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help you God. Exodus 18.21 as well. But select from all the people some capable, honest men who fear God and hate bribes. Appoint them as leaders over groups of 1,000, 150, and 10. So the kind of men, and this is the passage where Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, is telling him, what you are doing, this thing you are doing is not good. You need to appoint faithful men, trustworthy men, men who have good judgment, men who are capable, who are honest, who fear God, and hate bribes because not all men hate bribes. Some men love them. Some men absolutely love when they're offered a bribe. How, how else are they supposed to make money on that salary? Deuteronomy sixteen nineteen, you must never twist justice or show partiality. Never accept a bribe for bribes blind the eyes of the wise and corrupt the decisions of the godly. Job 15.34, for the godless are barren, their homes enriched through bribery will burn. So that is to say, when somebody has made themselves known as a godless person, you should not be surprised to find out that they take bribes. They're not afraid of God. They have no fear of God. They're not honest men. And they love bribes instead of hating bribes. They're the exact opposite of the kind of men that Moses was told to select to make judges in Israel, to make leaders in Israel. They're the exact opposite. It should not be assumed that just because somebody's in a position of authority, they hate bribes or they do what is just or they tell the truth. 
Proverbs 15.27, greed brings grief to the whole family, but those who hate bribes will live. And so on and so forth. I'll include a link to BibleCafe.org, 27 Bible verses about bribes. Thanks to Christine Abraham for putting these together in a comprehensive list. But suffice to say, bribes are a real thing. And that is to say, bribes are offered and they are also accepted. And when they are offered, they are offered as an investment by people who believe they will gain more than what they are spending by offering the bribe. When they're accepted, the result is a perversion of justice and of the truth. When a bribe is given and received, what you get is a corruption of justice. You get a miscarriage of justice and you get every kind of disorder. And therefore, how should we respond when it becomes apparent that the president of the United States of America has been taking bribes for years and decades of supposed public service. What should we do when it becomes apparent that our president has accepted bribes, as the evidence increasingly makes clear? Do we cover it over or do we say, well, that's just Republicans saying that, right? It's just Republicans who are full of envy and jealousy and selfish ambition. You can't trust them. You know, I played a clip for you from Fox News, Fox Business, I suppose I should say more to the point. And I've made it clear in the past, I'm not a big fan of Fox News. They just settled uh, a defamation suit with Dominion and paid a ridiculous amount of money rather than going to trial and defending claims that were made on their networks in the 2020 election. Claims and reports and stories about election irregularities, to put it mildly. I'm not a big fan of that. I'm not a big fan of some of the choices that they've made in recent years with regards to talent. Even when they had a whole lot of people on there that I was like, hmm, yeah, they sound you know pretty sensible for the most part. I would disagree with them on some things. Even back then, I was uncomfortable with Fox and the way they sensationalized the news. Not that they're the only ones who do it. That's just the business. Neil Postman was writing about it for years. That's why Amusing Ourselves to Death is a book that you need to read. That's why How to Watch TV News is a book that you need to read. That's why Technopoly is a book you need to read. <laughs> All really good books by him. This is not a secret, but that that said, like Ben Shapiro has pointed out, there is a logical fallacy of sorts in our day, politically and socially, that if a conservative says a kind of thing that you might expect to hear on Fox News, therefore it's not true. We know that things are not true if you hear them on Fox News, or if you could potentially hear them on Fox News. That's nonsense. Just because Maria Bartiromo is on the Fox Business Network, that doesn't mean that she is not a credible person. Just because Congressman Burchett is a Republican from Tennessee, that does not mean that he does not have credibility. It doesn't mean that these things that they are saying and talking about aren't worth your time and consideration. So we can't be so foolish and we can't be so simple and we can't be so blind to what is going on here that we would wave it off and dismiss it because let me tell you right now, accountability is not going to come unless it comes from Republicans. Accountability for the lawlessness of the Democrats is not going to come 
in a peaceable way, anything approaching a peaceable way here in the United States of America, unless it comes from Republicans, because nobody else has the cards or the chips to play the game at this table like it needs to be played, except God himself or some foreign power that may have already eaten our lunch, and we just don't all know it yet to the full extent. But if there are bribes involved here, then there need to be criminal charges. There need to be full and thorough investigations. People need to be removed from public office, from positions of authority, if they were complicit in this, if they were also taking bribes, or if they were intimidated into turning a blind eye. We can't go along with that. As the American people, if we do likewise, then we are also complicit. And I, for one, am not comfortable with that as a prospect. I don't want that on my record. I don't want that on my conscience. I'm not okay with this. And just like corruption can happen in other countries, it can happen here. It absolutely can. And it has been. We know that it has been on issue after issue, including the transgender push, which is also on the left, including the issue of abortion, which is also on the left, including the efforts at gun control, again, from the left, from Democrats, and our next topic, fossil fuels, the Green New Deal, the question of what powers our economy has been answered for the last hundred years. And plus, if you say fossil fuels and you don't just mean oil and gas, if you mean coal as well, the industrial revolution was powered by coal. And between those three, we have the most abundant and inexpensive and accessible supply of energy the world has ever known. Nuclear is great. It's a bit cost-intensive and similar to the complaints about fossil fuels. Nuclear has been maligned by the left, by Democrats for decades, and we are all the worse for it. Our energy has been less plentiful, less abundant, less affordable, and therefore everything else that is produced with energy or transported with energy or acquired from someone else with energy or used with energy is more expensive and less abundant, which means that we are all the poorer for what Democrats have done for decades to the fossil fuels industry. What they have done to the coal industry, what they've done to the oil and gas industry is a wicked thing. And Alex Epstein, no relation to Jeffrey Epstein, I trust. Alex Epstein writes an excellent book on this subject in The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. He writes an excellent book here. And the publisher's summary, I'll read it for you from audible.com, reads as follows. For decades, environmentalists have told us that using fossil fuels is a self-destructive addiction that will destroy our planet. Yet by every measure of human well-being, from life expectancy to clean water to climate safety, life has been getting better and better. How can this be? The explanation is that we usually hear only one side of the story. We're taught to think only of the negatives of fossil fuel their risks and side effects, but not their positives. Their unique ability to provide cheap, reliable energy for a world of 7 billion people and the moral significance of cheap, 
reliable energy is woefully underrated. Energy is our ability to improve every single aspect of life, whether economic or environmental. If we look at the big picture of fossil fuels, compared with the alternatives, the overall impact of using fossil fuels is to make the world a far better place. We are morally obligated to use more fossil fuels for the sake of our economy and our environment. Copyright 2014, Alexander J. Epstein, published 2015, Tantor. This is not a long book, six hours, 11 minutes. It's got a 4.8 out of five star rating on Audible, 1,651 ratings. I guarantee you that the people who are giving it strong ratings are for the most part people who are not radical environmentalists. Those folks probably don't want to hear it. They don't want to read this, but they should. They really should. You, If you're undecided on this issue and you feel uncomfortable with fossil fuels and you've been confused about what our responsibility should be, what our moral duty is to be stewards of the environment, for instance, you should read this book because I can't adequately summarize the wealth of information and the very strong argument that he gives, but I'll say the publisher's summary is on point. I would agree with it. I don't think it's hyperbolic. I don't think it's being oversold. This is a very strong moral case for why we need to continue extracting, transporting, refining, and using fossil fuels. And what I love probably the best is at the tail end of the book, Epstein talks about the letters that he wrote to executives of oil and gas companies, urging them to make it a little easier for him to stand up for their industry. Stop apologizing for the work that we do. And I say this as somebody who got into the oil and gas industry back in 2012. This is how I have provided for my family for 11 years now. It was April of 2012 that I moved back to my home state of Montana so that I could work in the Bakken oil field of primarily North Dakota, a little bit into eastern Montana, but primarily western North Dakota. I have worked in this industry for 11 years now. Started out in operations as a lease operator, operating individual well sites in eastern Montana, and then I worked for a couple of years on the North Dakota side, operating well sites over there. And then I got into automation and that's where I've been ever since. I've worked all over the Rockies. I've got connections up into Canada and some that are international, some people who travel back and forth, mostly onshore operations and automation personnel because that's where I've been working. But I've got hundreds of connections across the US and up into Canada, very, very capable people, very intelligent people, very skilled people, very knowledgeable people who are doing a very great service to this country by making it safe and affordable to power our economy with fossil fuels. And the whole time I've been in this industry, the Democrats in this country, especially Obama and Biden and AOC the Democrats in this country have been trying to destroy my career. They've been trying to destroy my livelihood. They've been trying to malign my best efforts at providing for my family and actually trying to help you 
provide for your family as well. My dad was a farmer when I was a kid, and then he got out of farming because of shenanigans with a corrupt local USDA official, drunk on power, thinking nobody would be able to touch him. If they complained, he would just be able to railroad whoever it was that complained. It's a long story. I've told it before on this podcast. I'm not going to tell it again right now. But suffice to say, my dad got out of farming and became a truck driver. He worked for a little bit as a parts salesman for John Deere dealerships. But for most of my life, I've known my dad as a truck driver. Trucks transport the food and raw materials and manufactured goods that you buy from the store or that you order on Amazon that show up at your door. Trucks transport these things. And those trucks run on fossil fuels. My dad's livelihood was not working in the oil and gas industry, but he wouldn't have been able to provide for our family when I was a kid, if not for the fossil fuels industry. The medical industry would not be able to function. The healthcare industry would not be able to function if not for the fossil fuels, the petroleum that goes into plastics, And those plastics go into so very, very much of what we use in a hospital or in a doctor's office or in a laboratory or in a pharmacy. You have no idea how much of what you're surrounded by in the modern world is made of plastics that are made from petroleum that comes up out of the ground, oil and gas that comes up out of the ground. The electricity to keep the lights on, to run the machines that are used in a hospital or a doctor's office or in any office for that matter. The electricity primarily comes from oil and natural gas and coal. And the Democrats want to abolish all of the above, which is to say they're okay with making it impossible for you to transport yourself and the goods that you require They're okay with making it impossible for you to keep the lights on if that's what it takes to flatter their agenda. They're the ones with selfish ambition and vain conceit in this scenario. And Alex Epstein, when he talks about writing to oil and gas companies, urging them, please stop apologizing. Please stop accepting the premise of the radical environmentalists and the Democratic Party that Your product is a necessary evil. It's not evil. It is necessary, but it's not a necessary evil because it's not evil. It is a force for good in the world because it promotes and facilitates human flourishing. Life is so much better because we have internal combustion engines and we have power plants that run on oil and gas and coal. And it can be proven. But you can't prove it to the radical environmentalists or the radical left. You can't prove it to them because they are so filled with selfish ambition and vain conceit. And they're willing to do whatever it takes to assassinate the character and the credibility of somebody who disagrees with them and contradicts them and cross-examines them. They're willing to do whatever it takes. No lie is too big or too vicious. And I'm sorry to say, some of that is driven by bribes from foreign countries whose economies wholly depend on fossil fuels because those countries want our country to be dependent on them. They want the whole world to be dependent on them. 
to supply fossil fuels that power our economy. And when those foreign countries bribe our government officials and they fund activists and radicals who are trying to convince you to see what I do to provide for my family as evil, what you do to transport your kids to church or school or a sports event or a concert or getting together with their friends as evil, because these people are promoting the idea that this is all something to feel guilty of, we have to have a response. And the response is not troublemaking. The troublemaking is on the radical left and it's amidst the radical environmentalists who have leveled a chart. The burden of proof is on them to substantiate the heinous accusations against men like me. The burden of proof is on them to prove that I am some kind of a bogeyman or villain or rube because I work in oil and gas. And what they'll do when you press on that point and you say, okay, prove it, what they'll do very often is they'll point to all of the money that is made. They leave out the part where oil and gas goes up and down in price and men are hired and fired. They're laid off and they're furloughed or they're brought back or called back or given enough hours to provide for their family or not enough hours as the case may be based on the price of these commodities and whether it's profitable to produce these commodities. And the profitability of producing these commodities is contingent on taxation and regulation and the approval of permits. And so what the Biden administration has done is they've killed major and critical infrastructure projects that would lower the cost of producing and transporting oil and gas to market. And they would make it easier for oil and gas companies in the U.S. to expand their operations and to do so profitably and to hire more people and to buy more equipment and to produce more oil and gas for less, which would then, when you go to fill up their at the gas station, it would translate to a lower cost for you. When you go to buy groceries that had to be produced in a field somewhere using farm equipment, tractors, combines, swathers, fertilizers, trucks using oil and gas, run on oil and gas, not by hand, (laughs) not hand cranked, (laughs) not pedal driven, not solar powered, your cost for groceries goes up with what the Democrats do in vilifying the oil and gas industry and the coal industry. Your cost of groceries goes up. Your cost of housing goes up. Your cost of electricity goes up. Your cost of everything goes up because everything requires energy. And so then you have to look at the cost of energy and you have to look at supply and demand. And you have to look at more than just supply and demand. You have to look at how much extra cost is tacked on, like a sin tax to oil and gas companies on the claim that this is an evil thing that we want to disincentivize people from using. Do we understand that by extension, everything that is made and transported, bought and sold in our economy is either more expensive or less expensive based on the cost of energy? Do we understand that? Do we also understand that the world is either a safer or a less safe place based on our dependence on countries who are petrostates, as they call them, 
Do we understand that being dependent on China, for instance, for rare earth metals puts us in a very, very dangerous, very vulnerable spot in the event that a war breaks out, a hot war breaks out between us and China? Do we understand that? Do we understand that lithium mining is also very dirty and wind farms offshore are now being campaigned against by radical environmentalists because whales are washing up on beaches. They speculate because of some kind of harmonics with wind turbines singing a siren song to these cetaceans. Do we understand that there are quotes in Alex Epstein's book of prominent radical environmentalists, radical leftist philosophers for decades saying that if nuclear fusion were possible, if we were able to generate unlimited, clean, abundant, inexpensive electricity and energy and power from nuclear fusion, they would regard that as the worst thing possible because what it would translate to would be a higher standard of living for people. There would be more people and people would have a higher environmental impact. I love where Epstein here hinges the argument because what he does is he takes a step back from the debate about fossil fuels, whether they're clean or they're dirty. And he he takes a step back. He does address the question of what's the environmental impact. And he does so very well, very eloquently, very artfully, very scientifically, very rationally, very calmly. But he takes a step back from that and he says, what's the goal? He asks the question, what's, what's the big goal? If the big goal is to have as clean of energy as possible, then you should note that our air is cleaner, our water is cleaner, the more fossil fuels we produce, because those fossil fuels being cheap and abundant actually fuels our efforts at innovating. It frees up labor, frees up people to devote their time and attention to the question of making these things cleaner So we can answer that question, but if the goal is to have zero impact on the environment, what you're ultimately wanting is not just an end to fossil fuels. What you're wanting is a drastic reduction in the number of people on planet Earth. And lo and behold, the same folks who are pushing for the abolition of fossil fuels also are the ones pushing for abortion and euthanasia and transgenderism and homosexuality, all of which lead to fewer people on planet earth. And I think this is a package deal. It's an anti-human package, no pun intended. It is demonic. It is actually scaled up what is described in James chapter three, verses 13 through 18. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above verse 15, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, verse 16, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And that's exactly what we find. And these folks are of their father, the devil. They're liars. They're liars who lie. And so when you catch them lying, you shouldn't be surprised. When you catch them being absolutely unhinged, enraged, violent, threatening towards those who just want to be able to provide for their families, they just want to get married have a household, raise children who will then get married, have households, have children. They are actually opposed to that. They don't like fossil fuels because it facilitates that. 
And what they're really ultimately striving for is zero environmental impact because they hold to a metaphysical, and I would say pantheistic, neo-pagan view of man's place in the created order. And they don't like even to say it's a created order. They're opposed to that too. Because again, like I said, it's a package deal. They're opposed to viewing the earth as God's creation because what they're actually opposed to is God's authority. So when it looks consistently again and again, like this is a religious position, that environmentalism is a cult, it's a death cult, it's an anti-human paradigm, again and again and again on every issue lining up opposite and contrary to and contradictory to the claims of God's word, it's not for no reason that it looks like that. It looks like that because it is that. If it looks like a duck, it waddles like a duck, it quacks like a duck, at a certain point you just say, ah, it's a duck. If it looks demonic, if it sounds demonic, if it acts demonic, at a certain point you say, like James 3 does, hmm, this is not wisdom that comes down from above. <laughs> this is clearly, clearly not of God. And Jesus tells us that. In the Gospels, he says that a good tree will not bear bad fruit. And a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. You are supposed to judge trees by their fruit, and the fruit of the left is bad fruit again and again and again and again. And if you would be wise on this and understand where these things come from in terms of ideas, you would study up on the French Revolution, you would study up on the Bolshevik Revolution, you would study up on Mao's revolution in China, and you would understand that these things, they don't just resemble each other accidentally as if there's a randomness, actually that we would expect there to be randomness and be surprised or even upset to find orderliness or a consistent pattern. That actually is another symptom that the wisdom that we are being presented with is not so much wisdom, really. It's earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom, which is no wisdom at all. We should expect to find every vile practice. And so what do we find? Every vile practice. We should expect to find disorder. And what do we find? <laughs> disorder, chaos, destruction. Richard Wormbrand, I read his book, Karl Marx and the Satanic Roots of Communism, here in recent months. It's one of the 22 books that I've read. I've read 22 books so far this year. My wife has read, what are the odds? Also 22 books so far this year. Most of them different books. Some overlap, a little bit of overlap, which is cool. But one of the 22 books I've read was Richard Wormbrand's Karl Marx and the Satanic Roots of Communism, in which he makes a very compelling case for Karl Marx having been literally a worshiper of Satan. And his idea, his Communist Manifesto, which I've also read, that's another one of the 22 books I've read this year, his Communist Manifesto with Frederick Engels uh, is an expression of Satanism. It's secular Satanism, perhaps you would say, but there's a whole lot of writings by Karl Marx which express an explicit fascination with Satan and a devotion to Satan. And no, I am not exaggerating. I'm not speaking figuratively and I'm not speaking emotionally here. I mean, literally, the guy was enamored with Satan. And then he cooked up an ideology which, when that torch was carried by Lenin, Stalin, Mao, others. It killed hundreds of millions of people 
in the 20th century. You know, the greatest cause for conflict in the 20th century, in world history really, was not religion per se, unless you want to classify communism as a religion. And I would say they're repackaging, they're rebranding communism in our day, and they call it the Green New Deal. It's nothing new. It's not a new deal. It's the old red deal, actually. That's what we should call it. Don't call it the Green New Deal. Call it the old red deal, because that's what it is. And people are threatened or bribed and bought off by turn, depending on which is more cost-effective to go along with it or else to get out of the way. And I think Alex Epstein is exactly right when he writes the moral case for fossil fuels really needs people who work in the oil and gas industry to stop apologizing for what we do for a living. No, no, I'm not sorry. You're welcome. You're welcome. I would actually put the demonization of oil and gas workers in the same category or a very, very closely related category to the demonization of military service members who've been sent overseas and they've put themselves in harm's way because they were trying to serve their country, trying to protect their family, their way of life here in America. They were told, this is how you do it. This is what we need you to do. It's going to mean being away from your family for long periods of time, possibly being injured or even killed, possibly getting sick and dying as a result. But when you come back, no guarantees we won't vilify you. We won't demonize you and everything that you sacrificed for. No guarantees that we won't completely sell you out and give everything that you fought and bled for over to your enemies as soon as it's convenient. I would also put oil and gas workers as very closely adjacent to law enforcement in this country. Law enforcement is very often a thankless job, which politicians will pay lip service to because they want to get reelected. But increasingly in recent years, they don't even pay lip service to law enforcement. They prattle on about how we need to hold law enforcement accountable. And then on the radical left, the same radical left that perpetuates lie after lie after lie on issue after issue after issue, having to do with human flourishing and peace with God, they don't stop when they come to law enforcement and say, yeah, you know what? We think we'll be on the side of the angels here. No, they demonize law enforcement as well. And they demonize oil and gas workers very similarly to how they demonize law enforcement. Let's take any questionable situation, any bad example we can, and let's blow it up to make it like this is everybody who is in this line of work, who's in this industry or this sector of our economy or our society. Let's blow it up to where this is how we're going to portray those people so that you hate them, so that you vote for us, so that we can go after them, and plunder them, and destroy them. It's an evil thing. It makes the shortlist of the seven things that God hates, that discord is sown among brothers along these lines. And Alex Epstein, he is right on the nose in pointing out that actually what this is what this is really about is human flourishing and a vision of the good life and a vision of man's relationship to his environment, namely the earth. And you have on the one hand, people who say we are pro-human. And I love, by the way, just a small side note, I love that he makes reference to Norman Borlaug. If you want to read more about Norman Borlaug, pick up The Wizard and the Prophet by Charles C. Mann. Great book contrasting Norman Borlaug and William Vogt who typify this debate, this conflict of visions. 
There's another great book for you, actually, by the way, Conflict of Visions by Thomas Sowell. This is not just we disagree on some particulars and all that. No, we have competing views of who God is, whether he deserves our worship and our praise on the one hand, or whether he is the villain of human history. But in the latter case, if you consistently portray God's ways as oppressive, tyrannical, unfair, unreasonable, then you are on Satan's side. Hate to break it to you. And increasingly, we see that too on the left. Increasingly, we see that all the things that the left in this country is for, the Satanists, and they even call themselves that, the Satanists are also like, yeah, ditto. Abortion is a sacrament to us too. You bet. At a certain point, we have to understand that it's not an accident that the radical left takes the positions that it does on question after question after question and reacts with such anger and hostility towards conservatives. You know, I I note, going back to Congressman Burchett from Tennessee and his conversation with Maria Bartiromo, and I, I do like Maria Bartiromo, by the way. I don't like Fox News. I don't like a lot of the decisions that they've made strategically. I think they've been very mercenary. But I do like a number of figures that have been personalities on Fox. Maria Bartiromo is one. I, I like her. I follow her because I, I like her. I like her contribution. I like what she has to say. I like the stories that she covers and the way she covers them. But Congressman Burchett from Tennessee is about as dry in his delivery as you can get. Not pants on head crazy, not hyperbolic, not some irrational crazy man. But the folks who want to dismiss what he is saying and they want to find excuses to turn a blind eye to this will pick at anything they can to justify laughing him off, dismissing him, making him the real problem here, just like in every dysfunctional family. The problem is not allowed to be discussed, resolved, worked through. The one who brings up the problem suddenly is the problem. Well, if you would just stop talking about it, then it would go away and we would be fine. Why can't you just leave it alone? Because honorable men hate bribes and they hate injustice and they hate innocent people being exploited and they hate when innocent people are maligned. That's why. That's why we can't just leave it alone, because this is a question of honor. This is a question of integrity. This is a question of decency. And it would go a long ways to establishing our credibility on the conservative side of things. For those of us who want to continue building up this country of ours, instead of tearing it down and being complicit in its ruination, it would go a long ways if we would embrace unapologetically the consistency of our positions. On transgenderism, don't say, this is an awful, horrible, evil, no good, rotten thing to do to children. But sure, I'll use your preferred pronouns, even though that's a lie. Ron DeSantis is right. And respectfully, the author at The Blaze is wrong. And if that decision to use preferred pronouns for the congressman from Missoula was made executively, they're wrong. And this is why I podcast, by the way. Someday I'll have to write a book. (laughs) If I ever get finished with the one on marriage and having children and going to church, 
I'll have to write a book on This Is Why I Podcast. But Ron DeSantis, again, is exactly right. In the clip that I played for you just the other day, he says, for you to say you're a woman when you're clearly a man and to tell me I have to affirm that is for you to tell me to affirm a lie. And I'm just not willing to do that. I refuse to do that. I can't do that and have a good conscience before my maker. I can't do that. I can't be threatened into affirming your lie. I won't be. I won't be bullied. I won't be intimidated. I won't be bought. But then that, oh man, when that becomes apparent, friends, when that becomes apparent, I think that's when we're going to find that the gloves come off and we actually get this sorted. And the cost doesn't go down the longer we put it off. And it doesn't go away the longer we put it off. The cost only goes up and up and up and up the more we defer maintenance here on our government and our society, on our homes, our businesses. The longer we defer maintenance and normalize deviation, deviance, the higher the cost will be, not just in equipment, not just to the environment, but of human life. Because that's the other side of it. You have on the one side, those who are promoting human flourishing, who are arguing why it is a net good. There's a very goodness to the building up of civilization because it's obedience to God's original command to our race, which God made male and female in the beginning and said, be fruitful and multiply to, and said, fill the earth and subdue it and exercise dominion over the creatures, over the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, and the fish in the sea, too. On the one hand, you have those who say there's a very goodness to what God told us to be about and to do, and we're doing it. And on the other hand, you have a hatefulness towards all of the above. And in the middle, you have people who aren't sure. And so they're kind of hedging their bets. And that won't do. It won't do to hedge your bets. Yes, Or no, are you in or are you out? Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of Egypt or the surrounding nations or Yahweh God. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And unapologetically, I may be destroyed physically. That could be. I could be bankrupted here in the next couple of years at the rate we're going. It's not looking pretty. It it really isn't. I'll I'll just be honest with you. I'm not going to pat myself on the back, toot my own horn. It's not looking pretty. But then I don't know what else I can do except what I am doing. And that includes podcasting. That includes bringing the moral case for fossil fuels to your attention. I really would love to see more Americans, more of my countrymen, more of my friends, more of my family similarly commit to saying what is true and only what is true, not flattering nor slandering, but speaking the truth clearly, boldly, succinctly, consistently, not accepting bribes, hating bribes. Go beyond just, well, I don't personally take bribes, but you know, who am I? Who am I to judge? No, you, you are supposed to judge rightly, Jesus said. Don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. You are supposed to judge. In fact, Jesus told you in the Gospels to judge. He told all of us to judge with right judgment. We get that right judgment from God in his word. So the decision before us is obedience or disobedience. Either 
we will fear God and we will live and it will go well for us, or we will hate God and we will destroy ourselves and one another. Which would you rather? I, f- I for one, I for one, rather enjoy the idea of life forevermore and a blessing from God himself. I like that idea. I am drawn to that idea and we all should be. So heed the call. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I gotta run. As always, thank you for listening. Do check out The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.